Hey guys, welcome to Revolution. Um, we're so excited you're here. Um, so, just a few announcements to get us started. Um, first one, um, I don't know where I want to start. Let me think. Okay, first announcement free market. If you have boxes at your house, we would love for you to bring those in for us. Um, So bring in your boxes. Keep on bringing in your items. Um, For those of you who aren't in the know and don't understand what free market is, it's an opportunity for us to get to know our community, for them to come in. Um, We give them gently used items um, that we would offer to our closest family members or to ourselves because we um, want to love people the way Jesus did. So um, we're giving them free clothes. I believe there's going to be food, canned food items, types of things like toiletries, maybe stuff of that nature, stuff like necessities. Um, and we're going to have the opportunity to give it to them. And also it will help us build relationships because free market is going to be taking place on Brown street at the Nazarene church. Um, and that is towards the East end, which is one of our big ministries that we have. So it's a great opportunity for us to get to know that community a little bit better. Um, second announcement, We are really struggling with getting volunteers involved in the East End. So, um, stop being lame. This is a calling our church has been called to. Get off your asterisk, asterisk, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) Like, seriously, guys, we need people to get involved. Um, So, Tuesday nights at 6 o'clock, we pick up trash. Um, it sounds super lame, but it is a great opportunity, um, to also build relationships and develop, um, a sense of community in the East End. Um, people are asking, why are you picking up trash? Whoa, let me tell you about Jesus. Not exactly in that order. Like there's a lot in between, but it still leads to the end result of presenting the gospel, which is awesome. Friday nights, we have the cookouts, um, get a hold of the boys in the East End, get a hold of Stephen, Kenzie, Dowdy's in there now. Um, and then I know Alex Kelly's girlfriend volunteers a lot. So go ahead and get involved in that. Um, We have tons and tons and tons of growth groups. Um, There's so many opportunities, so there is literally no excuse for anyone to not get involved in a growth group because there's literally one every single night of the... That's exaggerated. Get involved, guys. That's it. Like, you're a Christian. Act like it. So, um, that was a little tough. I didn't mean for it to be, but, you know, sometimes it's what it takes. So... Um, let's pray, and then we're going to get to know our um, family. So, um, bow your heads. Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come and worship you, God. Um, I pray that you put motivation in our hearts um, and, and give us drive to pursue those who are lost, to pursue those who know you and need encouragement, and just to pursue you, God. We love you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, guys, 30 seconds. Um, the question of the night. Are you ready? Would you rather... This is so stupid. Would you rather grow a mustache that you can never shave or a chin strap that's there every day and you have to shave? Thanks. Right on, right on. So what's up, Revolution? Right on. So I'm just going to cut to the chase. Uh, I did a lot of really bad stuff when I was a kid. Which is a shocker, right? If any of you talk to me for like 10 minutes, you know that I was a complete idiot. My grandpa's there. He knows all kinds of stuff that I've done. Um, 
And I, I like to tell I like to tell you guys stuff like this because um, you guys seem to think a lot of it's funny. This is actually like therapeutic for me. And like if my grandparents or my sister or mommy ever hears some something that I've done that I'm using in a sermon, I figured they can't really hold it against me because I'm using it to glorify God. Um, Jesus has forgiven me, so get off my back. Um, that's just kind of my MO with the whole thing. So this is therapeutic to me. Uh, what's some stupid stuff I did when I was little? Um, in kindergarten, because it started young. It started really, really young. I think I went into the principal's office like literally no less than 10 times my first year of school. Uh, I remember my teacher came up to me. It's one of my first memories of school. And uh, Miss Hammond comes up to me and says, David, I need your slingshot. I was like, what slingshot are you talking about? You're out of your mind. And she just points up to the ceiling above me where there's like nine pencils embedded into the styrofoam ceiling. And I was like, oh, you caught me. Um, Like fast forward a few years, uh, I'm like 10 or 11. Mom tells me, um, I'll be back in like a half an hour. I'm going to run to the grocery store. I'll be right back. And uh, in the meantime, I set the living room curtains on fire. Um, I didn't completely set them on fire. Like she knew who she was dealing with, so I think she bought flame retardant curtains. And I just singed the bottom, but nonetheless, uh, it stands. Uh, fast forward past that, I remember being in junior high, and uh, I had to go to the restroom, and my teacher told me I couldn't. So I went to her potted plant that she was very fond of, and told her like, "Look, it's either the plant or the bathroom." And she thought I was kidding. And I just started unbuttoning my pants and unzipping my pants, and all of a sudden, it was really cool for me to go to the restroom. Um, which, by the way, just if you guys are ever at work and your employer, like, doesn't want to give you a break, just wherever you're at, just start unzipping your pants. Like, I promise. Like, I'm a manager at a store. I'll let you go to the bathroom no matter what I was busy doing. And that might actually just be good life advice. Anytime you want to get something done and someone's keeping you from doing it, just start taking your pants off. Um, I mean that in the least sexual way, of course. Uh, but nonetheless, you just try it. Uh, taking it. Taking it further, I remember in high school... And this is my senior year, and this is like the coup de grace of me being a complete idiot. Um, we had this library sign-in sheet, and my family actually kept the, the notice of suspension that I got for this one, because my mom thought it was funny. And uh, we had to, you had to sign in, you had to write, write your name, the period you, you were there, what you were there for, um, so they could keep tabs on you, and me thinking that I'm a genius, like, comedian with a pencil. Um, I, how do I say this in church? Um, I... I drew a certain male body part, I should say, as big as the paper was. And, uh, and, and I don't know, that was just, I'm, I'm an idiot. I don't know why. I thought that was funny. But what I'm getting at is no matter what I did, if, if someone told me to do A, I was going to do B. I knew what was acceptable and what was right to do, and, and I would choose to do the wrong thing. Uh, growing up, that was just my MO. And still today... I'm the, same, I'm the same way. I'm not going around drawing stuff like that anymore. But I'm, 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 I'm generally, I do the same stuff sometimes even as a Christian. I know what's right, but I do what's wrong. Um, I know what God expects me to do. I know that, that in the face of whatever situation arises, I know what I should do, and I do the opposite. Uh, like, you know, you're on 52 at that stupid bottleneck near Walmart, and that old lady pulls out in front of you, and you know you should forgive her, but you ride her and almost hit her, and you got your hand out the window, and you're screaming. Anyone else have road rage? No one? That's the worst bottleneck, by the way, I've ever seen in my life on 52. Um, but what I'm getting at is most of the time we know what we're supposed to do, but we do the opposite. We follow the temptation to sin. And the truth of the matter is we don't need any help sinning. You ever seen, like, the real trashy t-shirts, like, high school girls will wear? It's, like, built to sin. 
Like, that's actually, like, not too far from the truth. Like, we don't need any help sinning. We can sin just fine on our own. We don't need tempted. We can tempt ourselves. In James, we're, we're in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 tonight. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can have one of those blue Bibles. Take it with you. And if you're lazy like me and don't want to flip through it, it's going to be up here on the projector. Uh, James takes this idea of temptation being our fault, that our temptation that we face comes from us and not from God, that we don't need any help to sin. He takes it and expounds on it in this, uh, in this text we're going to be at. So verse 12. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. All right, so right off the rip, God blesses those who, who patiently endure testing and temptation. This is a callback to verses 2, 3, and 4 that we talked about a few weeks ago, that God wants us to rejoice in our testing and rejoice in our trials because he intends to grow us to be made more like Jesus. That's his whole goal. So if we patiently endure, if we remain faithful and grow to be more like Jesus, God will bless us, and afterward, we will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So he's saying, hang tight. Right? You're going to be made more like Jesus, and, and after it's all said and done, you're going to live eternally. You're not going to have to suffer for your sin. If you've been faithful to Jesus, if you believe that Christ lived a perfect life, died in your place for your sin, and was resurrected, and you, and you put your faith in that, that it's all going to be worth it. Stick it out. Verse 13, and remember, when you're being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. So whenever you're in the middle of a, a situation that's less than desirable, or you're faced with this option to either do what's right or sin, and you really want to sin, know that God, even though he, under, like he puts you there sovereignly in that position, he doesn't desire you to sin. He desires you to grow. He desires you to become more like Jesus. And because God hates sin, he's not going to tempt you to sin. It's against his character. 14, temptation comes from our desires which entice us and drag us away. So just real quick, temptation is this knee-jerk response, like this knee-jerk instinct that we have whenever we're faced um, with a test, whenever we're faced with a situation to sin. That's what temptation is. It's our instinct. It's the first thing we do. It's what we think that we want to do rather than obey God. It's our knee-jerk reaction. And this temptation, where does it come from? It comes from our own desires that entice us and drag us away. And these desires, should we give in to them, these desires give birth to sinful action. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So this instinct, if we give in to it, will ultimately destroy us. It will ultimately destroy everything. Sin always does nothing but destroy. You can see it in families where someone is tempted uh, with, with a, a man's tempted with a woman that he's not married to, and he acts on that temptation, and the family split. Uh, a woman, a, a wife, or something has the temptation to be greedy and spend money, and bills don't get paid, and then families split. We see sin destroy always. And I think another cool thing that I, I picked up on, just want to throw this one out. It says these desires give birth, and it uses the word birth a lot. Um, whenever we sin, we commit adultery against God. Like we, we make something else God, and like God in the Old Testament would always say, you've committed adultery against me. You're supposed to be my bride. I chose you. So whenever we follow our own desire and do our own thing, we cheat on God. And I just thought that was an interesting thing with the, the word birth. So what do we draw from this text? What, what's, what's the idea? What's James wanting us to get? Um, I, I think the f- most important thing James wants us to understand in this text is that our temptation is our own fault. And it's our own fault because we desire in our heart to disobey God. Period. 
And if you think I'm wrong, if you think that you don't actually desire to disobey God, um, go with me on this. You're in this situation. Someone says something that hurts your wife or your girlfriend or your mom or hurts your feelings, just makes you really angry. What you think is, well, you know, I'd like to say this to them, even if you don't. But the initial thing that you think is what you want to do to that person, what you want to say to that person, and it's always sinful. It's never like, I really want to pray for that person because they, they called my mom a piece of trash. That, I, I want to do that. No, it's never that. It's always, I, I want to do something sinful. So it's our desire to sin against God. And, and following our desires pull us away from God. Whenever James says that it entices us, he uses um, this, this wording that re- reminds people, I think in Greek, of, um, of fishing, like a lure goes out in front of you, and if you bite, right, if you go for that desire and decide to do that, it's going to hook you and it's going to pull you away because sin cuts off closeness to God. It, it's, it's what it always does. I'm not saying that if you, if you sin and you're a Christian that you're going to lose your salvation. I think that's, that's kind of a silly thought, but I am saying that whenever you sin, it drives a wedge between you and God because you're making something else your God. You're in relationship with a false God. You're in relationship with greed. You're in relationship and communion with adultery. You're, you're in relationship with lust, whatever it may be. And, and it cuts you off from God. It, it, it cuts off closeness. And then lastly, I think it's huge to, to know that our desire brings destruction. I think it's the last thing that James... I'm just trying to reiterate what James says. Our desire brings destruction. And you can... You can see that in yourself almost every time. If you think back to you following your own will, it never has worked out in your favor. Like I know for me, um, a, a test that I had to face a few years back, I was in a relationship with this girl and things went south about as quickly as possible. Um, I thought that I was going to marry this chick and I'm glad it didn't work out because I'm with Autumn. Just throwing that one in there so I don't get in trouble later. Um, but... But I thought I was going to marry this girl. I thought that like this was it. And then, boom, God took her away from me in the, in the quickest, most painful way that I could have imagined. Um, because I had, made a, I had made her an idol. And what did I do instead of trusting God? Because whenever God fa- uh, allows us to face trial or a test, he's saying, trust me. Are you going to trust me? If it's a financial test or whatever, it's, are you going to trust me to provide for you? If it's a relationship kind of thing, do you trust me that this isn't what I want for you, that I have something different, or, or maybe I want you to be single, or whatever we go through, God is always telling us, do you trust me for X? Whatever it is, do you trust me for this? And I didn't. I decided to do my own thing. I reverted back to what I knew before I was a Christian. I hadn't been a Christian very long. I started drinking um, and, and, and getting, getting hammered all the time to cope with it. And I started, you know, I started uh, having sex uh, to thinking, like, this will fix it. This will make me forget. This is how I'm going to cope with it. And what did I do? I dishonored the name of Christ. I destroyed my testimony as a Christian. And I hurt people in the process. Sin destroys. Your own will always destroys. So following our temptations to not trust God never works out for our good, ever. So this desire that we have to sin, where does it come from? It comes from our sinful nature, period. It's, it's, it's that easy. Uh, and, and if you don't think that you, have, uh, that you were born a sinner, you don't think that you have in your heart um, sinful desire uh, Psalm 51.5, there's just scripture after scripture after scripture. Psalm 51.5 says that we were conceived in sin. That from the moment sperm and egg 
met, we were a sinner. We were, we, that, that's, this, that's the long and short of it. We were conceived in sin. Romans 8, 7 tells us that from birth, we are hostile to God. We're hostile to his commands. Not only do we not want to obey them, but we can't because we are God-haters. You know, Jeremiah 17, 9, which is one of my, one of my favorite verses, says that, that we are so wicked, that our heart is so corrupted and wicked that we can't even fathom how sinful that we really are. That's where these desires come from. They come from our nature. Roman talks about, uh, Romans talks about us being a slave to sin, left and right, in chapters like 6, 7, and 8. We're slaves to our sin. We, all we want to do is sin. That's all we can do, and that's why we have this desire to disobey God, because we're depraved human beings. We want nothing to do with being faithful to God. But, but here's some good news. Uh, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, um, that trust Jesus for our salvation, that believe that his life, death, and resurrection have paid for everything, um, we are no longer bound to that nature. Right? Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. And we are no longer slaves to sin. Romans chapter 8 says that we are no longer obligated to obey that sinful nature. So in spite of this nature, in spite of our heart's desire to disobey God, God still desires our obedience and has made it possible for us to obey Him. He's made it possible for us not to sin. And why is that? Because God doesn't will us to sin. God doesn't actively want us to sin. He hates sin. Never forget this. God hates sin so much that he killed Jesus because Jesus became sin. Never think that your sin's okay or that God must have wanted you to do whatever because God knows how I'm going to react in this situation and God put me in this situation so he must want me to sin. All right, so you hyper-Calvinists out there, you can take that knife in the gut. God does not ordain sin, ever. He never ordains sin. He hates it. God desires our growth not our failure. And he's made it possible for us to abstain from sin through faith in Jesus. So because of this freedom we have, right, we're no longer slaves to our sin, because of this freedom, we now have the ability to obey or disobey. We can either grow or we can wither. Those are the options that we have now. And in light of that, in light of our ability to actually kick our temptation to the side, James tells us to patiently endure tests and temptations to sin. And and here's how we endure. We begin to put our sin to death. We we begin to put our sin to death. So how do we do that? We we begin to pray for heart change. I know a few months ago we talked about, Ryan preached on heart change versus behavior modification. The first thing we do is we begin to pray for heart change. If we want to put our sin to death to get rid of temptation so that we can abstain from sin, so that we can be patiently enduring until the end, we start to pray, God, you know, I I struggle with whatever. I need you to change my heart. And I'm just going to be really transparent with you guys. I am a recovering pornography addict. Um, I know that might sound funny, but I used to watch porn upwards of 10 hours a week, every day, multiple times a day. Could not stop. Um, and, and I remember whenever I first started saying, like, this needs to end, I started praying for heart change. God, change how I feel about women. Um, change how I feel about sex. Change how I feel about marriage. Change how I look at people. Change how I understand all of this. Change my heart. Make me hate it. Make me sick of it. And that applies to, to all sin. You know, if, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you're bent to be greedy and be tight-fisted with your money, pray, God... 
you know, change my heart on how I view money, how I received the money, why you let me have this. Help me to understand that you've given me this, these are resources so that I can go out and bless other people. If, 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 you're, if your sin that you struggle with is, I don't know, selfishness, you know, pray that God change you know, how do I view my time, how I view my abilities, that God's placed me here to serve other people and not serve myself. God, change how I view those around me. Help me to be compassionate and be willing to get involved and help people and not be selfish with my time. So we pray for heart change, but in the meantime, and I will say this until the day I die, in the meantime, heart change is the ultimate factor that's going to determine whether or not you can overcome sin, and only the Holy Spirit can do that. But in the meantime, you can stop the action. Like, I remember I was talking with Rick and Scott earlier this week, and we were talking about, you know, how do you stop hating somebody? Well, you pray for heart change, and in the meantime, you begin actively doing good for that person, even if you don't feel like you want to in your heart. You start doing the opposite of, of the sin or you abstain from the sin completely. You start putting barriers up to keep you from that temptation. You start putting barriers up so that you don't fall into that sin. And by doing this, we deny our urge to disobey God. By praying for heart change and actively looking to stop, we grow. Now, there's this problem of habitual sin, um, which is a sin that... I mean, obviously, it's habitual sin. Uh, it's sin. I don't know why I'm trying to explain that any further. It's, uh, it's, it's sin that we can't seem to get past. Um, and like I said, I'm just being transparent. Me with, with pornography, that was years and years and years. And it's only been within the last year of being a Christian that I, I can say that I've almost got the problem licked completely. Um, it, it's, it's really difficult. Habitual sin. We feel like we can't overcome it. And, and guys, I know they're, they're, I'm sure there are guys here, so I'm sure this is a problem. I'm not the only one. Um, it's cool. You can, it's an awkward thing to talk about. It's cool. Um, or you can apply this to any, any sin that you have a hard time getting past. I, I just want to encourage you guys with, with what I'm getting ready to say, because no one ever told me this. Christian growth and maturity isn't, isn't based on how how often we're tempted to sin, right? It's not, it's not based off how often we desire to sin. Christian maturity is based off of our infrequency in succumbing to that sin, right? So if you guys are struggling with whatever temptation, with whatever sin you may be dealing with on a regular basis, know this, the fact that you struggle with it, the fact that you're, you're fighting it, the fact that you want to do it, doesn't mean that you're not growing, the fact that you aren't succumbing to it or you're succumbing to it less. I remember whenever I first tried to quit watching porn, I could only, I genuinely could only stop for like a day or two and then I would relapse and then a day or two and then I'd relapse and two days turned into four days and then four days turned into a week and then that turned into two weeks and so on and so on. And it gets you progress more. Whenever we're trying to overcome sin to fight temptation, we progressively get better. We struggle against sin. Paul says, I struggle against my flesh. And I just want to throw this out there too, as a freebie. Um, we use the word struggle wrong most of the time. Uh, people, people, I've noticed this at Rev at least, I struggle with whatever. No, you don't. Struggle, like, struggle implies that you're actively fighting against it and that you're gaining some ground. Right? There's a difference in saying, like, I struggle with 
um, not having sex with my girlfriend, and I just have sex with my girlfriend, but I'm saying in small group that I struggle with it so that everyone thinks that, like, I don't know. It's like a Christian term. Um, struggle implies that you are fighting it. Keep that in mind. So we struggle against sin. We actively fight it. We look to put it to death. So, and this won't happen overnight. Like whatever your temptation is, it's not going to go away overnight. Whatever your sin is that's habitual, it's not going to go away overnight. But there should be progress. And I'll tell you this, if you can look back over the last year of your life and whatever sin that you have a hard time with, and you can see absolutely no difference in where you're at now and where you were a year ago, you need to check yourself. You need to ask yourself the question, am I following Jesus? Do I really believe that Jesus died in my place for my sin? I'm not progressing at all. Do I really care about getting rid of temptation and getting rid of sin in my life? Do I really care about following Jesus' commands? Ask yourself that question. Because our actions reflect what we actually believe. Our our willingness to fight sin reflects that, that... we are devoting ourselves to Jesus. So what I'm getting at is if you say you're a Christian, prove it. If you say you're a Christian, prove it by not giving in to your desire, by not giving in to your temptation, by setting up barriers, by praying for heart change, by actively seeking to, to rid yourself of sin as much as you can help it. Fight. Wage war on yourself. Paul says, I, I, beat, my, I beat my flesh into submission. Right? We're, we're slaves to righteousness now. We're not slaves to sin any longer. So if you call yourself a Christian, pray for heart change and stop the action. It's a continuous process. And I know some of you guys are maybe saying, well, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to be able to overcome everything all the time. If it's not one sin, it's another. And I'm here to tell you that's why Jesus came. We're not perfect. We're never going to be perfect. We're always going to struggle against sin. We're always, at some point in our walk, we're going to fall. We're going to fail. We're going to get caught up. That's just how it is. We're imperfect human beings. But that's why Jesus came. Because Jesus looked down and he saw our imperfections. Jesus looked down and he saw that we are unable to be faithful to God 100% of the time. And what does God demand out of us to, to, to avoid hell? To be faithful 100% of the time. But we've already missed that because we were born sinners. We have a sinful nature. So we're screwed. Right? God's justice, one of my favorite analogies is that God's justice is pointed directly at our hearts because of our inability to be faithful. It's like an arrow he has drawn back and he has no reason other than the fact that he's merciful from letting it go and sending us to hell right now. So justice demands that we pay for our inability to be faithful. Justice demands that we pay for, 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 for giving in to our temptation. Justice demands that we pay for our sin. And sin is rebellion against God. Sin is trying to take God's place, telling him, I think I know better than you. I think my desire and my will is better than yours. That's the most awful, grievous sin you can commit. It's the most awful crime you can commit. And you've committed it against the most innocent, holy, pure being. So justice says that you deserve hell now. You've committed the most awful crime. You deserve the most awful punishment imaginable. And and that's hell. So that's God's justice, but in God's love and his mercy, and this is why I said this is why Jesus came. God saw our inability to follow him perfectly. So he said, I'm going to fix this for them. And he sent Jesus. 
So Jesus comes to earth and he's born sinless where we're born sinners. And Jesus lives a sinless, perfectly obedient life, never giving in to sinful temptation, never giving in to any desire other than the will of God, where we almost always give in to our own desire. Jesus did what we couldn't do. He lives a perfect life. And then after living a perfect life, he says, God, you say justice must be done. Someone must pay for sin. And as it stands, these people are going to have to pay for their own sin. But I want to pay it for them. So Jesus, in his sinlessness, in his guiltlessness, not deserving hell, not deserving even physical death, Jesus takes our sin on himself and he goes to the cross. And on the cross, God pours out all of his wrath for what we have done and what we will do in the future. All sin put on Jesus. The Bible says Jesus became sin on the cross and God pours out his judgment for sin. Jesus literally suffered death and hell on the cross in our place. But three days later, God raised him from the dead, proving that he was innocent, proving that Jesus' sacrifice was perfect and that our penalty for sin had been paid. And now if we just put our faith and trust in the fact that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was enough to pay for our shortcomings, to pay for our unfaithfulness, to pay for our desire to sin against God, to cover our sinful nature and to give us a new nature. If we believe that, we're saved. We owe God nothing for our sin because Jesus has already paid it. So now in gratitude, remember everything we do is out of a heart of gratitude. So now in gratitude for what Jesus has done, for living a perfect life that we couldn't, for taking our punishment for sin, and if if we did that, we'd be in hell for eternity, for doing what we couldn't do, we should have just a well of gratitude in our heart for Jesus, and that should just spur us on to fight temptation. It should spur us on to want to follow God and, and, and endure tests joyfully and become more like his son Jesus. Everything we should do should be motivated by gratitude. So we can fight temptation, not only out of gratitude, but because in Christ we're given a new nature. The Bible says that that whenever we come to faith in Jesus, that we're united with Christ, that that we get his perfection, that we get a new nature. Not that we're going to be sinless and perfect here, but that we actually can overcome our sin now. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness. Like I said earlier, now we have the ability to obey, to fight temptation, to fight sin, and actually be faithful to God. We can endure. James says those who patiently endure afterward will receive a crown of life. And I just want to throw this out at you, and this might have mixed responses. Um, Endurance is not never sinning again. That's not what endurance is. Endurance is the resolve to keep going even when you mess up. That's what endurance is. So we, we still, even though we're Christians, we've been given a new nature, we'll still succumb to our own temptation and our own desire sometime. But endurance, the endurance James is talking about, is a resolve to keep going. And the reason why we can have this resolve, the reason why we can endure is because we know that our salvation has already been secured by Jesus. If Jesus hadn't already, already secured our salvation, perfection's not going to happen for us. There's no point in us even trying. But because of what Jesus has already done, we can keep going. So in this life, if you sin, 
Get up and run back to the cross and thank God that Jesus died in your place for your sins so that you can keep going, that your salvation hasn't been affected, but that now you have even more gratitude that Jesus died for that sin that you just committed, that you are even more resolved to go and try to be more like Christ and, and kick temptation to the side and follow him and be faithful. The, the crown of life that James talks about here isn't a golden crown either. It's, it's a wreath given to like race winners. Like think of like the Olympics. Like the Bible uses the metaphor of a race for life all the time. So we're going to run this race and there are going to be obstacles along the way. There's going to be mud we get stuck in. We're going to run uphill. We're going to have to jump over stuff. We're going to fall. We're going to want to quit. It's going to be hard. We're going to be tempted to stop. We're going to be tempted to, to do whatever. We're, we're going to be tempted to, to follow our own desire and, and quit. But we can endure because Jesus has already won the race for us. Nothing can shake that. We can keep going, and I'm not giving you a license to sin. I'm not saying that it's okay to go out and do whatever you want because a lifestyle characterized by unrepentant sin means you're not a Christian. Grace isn't a safety net. Grace is, is security. Grace, grace, is, or grace isn't a hammock. It's a safety net. Right? We, don't, we don't lay in grace and say, well, I can go ahead and keep doing whatever I want because Jesus won the race for me. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, should we keep on sinning because we know that God's given us more grace than we have sin? No, we don't do that. But it's a safety net for us that we know we can get back up and we can continue running. So run to Jesus. Keep going. Resolve to keep pushing forward. Jesus asked us to deny ourselves, our will and our desire and deny ourselves our, our desire to sin for 70 or 80 years. And then it's over. That's all he asked us for. For the fact that he has secured our salvation by doing all the work for us. And then he says, hang in there for 70 or 80 years. Keep pushing to be more like me. That is, that is literally asking us to do nothing. He's done it all for us. We can hang in there because our struggle will end. Our temptation will end someday and it will all be worth it. We'll see Jesus face to face and it will be worth it. All of the struggle, all of the falling, all of the white knuckling and, and forcing yourself to keep going and keep following Jesus and fighting sin will be worth it. So we, we can do this. So keep going. Press forward. And if any of you out there don't follow Jesus or you don't um, have, have faith that Jesus um, died in your place for your sin and suffered your penalty... Or, or, or you want to know what that means more, what it means to have this resolve, what it means to have this new nature, what it means to, to have faith in Jesus and, and follow him and be a disciple of Jesus. If you want to know more about that, come, to, come find me. Come find anyone that's going to be on this stage. I'm going to hang out around the front of this stage um, after the service is over. Please come talk to me if you guys want to know what that means and, and, and how you can be saved through faith. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you so much um, for the fact that, that Jesus has won the race for us, for the fact that we're judged off Jesus' perfection, not our imperfection. Thank you so much for the righteousness that Jesus gives us in place of our wicked sinfulness. 
Thank you for the new nature that we're given. Thank you for the ability that you've given Christians to overcome sin. God, I pray that we take this ability that you've given us seriously and that we start to work to kill habitual sin, that that we start to work to kill the temptation in our life, that we start to work to to be more like Jesus, to, to resolve to endure. But God, above everything, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your son living a perfect life and dying in our place. Thank you for him becoming someone like us in flesh, but someone so unlike us in his perfection. God, we can't thank you enough. So God, we're going to worship you for everything that you've done for us, for accomplishing our salvation and then giving it to us. God, you are deserving of all glory and all effort. Prayerless things in Jesus' name. Amen.